Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Hefter, and I'm joined today by Samantha Leone, who is an assistant manager of museum engagement. Welcome, Samantha. Thanks Hello. for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I start out every time talking about roles and then what that actually means because titles around here are nebulous and job functions don't always fall into it. So tell us what an assistant manager of museum engagement does. What does that even mean? So it varies for, there's four of us and it varies. I know Bill Stringer is on here a little while ago and what he does super varies from what I do. Um, When I was hired, I was told, you know, you're going to be our point person for adult volunteers and youth volunteers. And that is the bulk of my job. I was just spending a couple hours making the schedules for our youth volunteers. Uh, Youth volunteer program, if anyone would like to join, uh, you can join. It's uh, ages 13 to around 18 when you graduate high school. And I'm making schedules for them. So when they're, what they're doing on the floor um, and stuff like that. I'm working with the kids a lot. I'm working with teenagers. I may be only 25, but I feel so old almost every day. <laughs> One of the youth really enjoys referring to it as the late 1900s, uh, which on. hurts a lot. Come but... on. They're, <laughs> they're like, oh, wow, what's that um, What's that contraption in the history museum? Yeah, like, they're like, did you watch TV in black and white? I'm in the same generation as you. I mean, yes, but no. <laughs> We were talking a little off air uh, about learning different languages. Mm-hmm. How fluent are you in teenager? Luckily, very. I, my okay. degree is originally in grade 7 to 12 social studies education. So I've known I've wanted to work with 13 to 18 for a long time. And I think it helps that I'm also technically Gen Z, depending what year you use. So it's pretty easy. But sometimes I'll have to go like, okay, no, I need to Urban Dictionary this. Or I will stop the mid-conversation <laughs> and go... Okay, Miss Smith is a boomer right now. What does that mean? And they usually take pity on me and explain it. Let me let me tell you where I'm at in life. <laughs> I turn the flashlight on my phone on a lot, um, unintentionally, and I I've noticed this. Um, and every now now and then, I'll joke with my team because I'll try to take photos of something like, oh hey, we we did this exciting thing. Here's some photos, and they're always bad. But it's worse because then there's randomly a photo of my foot. So I'm like still taking photos as I'm putting my phone down. And I'm like, oh, that's no. so embarrassing. I mean, at least you can go in and delete those for you, you know, share my viewer. Just like, let me just delete the photos of my foot real quick. But I feel like it's one of those things. It's like, hey, I need to I need to own this for people so I have accountability. So you all can say, hey, don't be that old yet. Okay? Yeah. They really enjoy calling me after being old. I'm like, Yo, I make your schedules. Like, I can give you a bad schedule. I don't. I don't. I'm not that mean. <laughs> that, <But. laughs> it's That's character building for them. Yeah. What's it like working with teens and adults? I, mean, you, I work with both, yeah. You are, not to not to be insulting, would you consider yourself barely an adult? Do you... Some days I really feel like barely an adult. Uh, <laughs> at college, I always referred to myself as a pseudo-adult, is what my mom and I called me. And it's... I know I'm one of the youngest people on the museum engagement you're team. 20, you're 25, so yeah. I think some people would say, 25, she's barely an adult. Yeah, and I hear that a lot. A lot of our adult volunteers have retired or are around retirement age, so they'll they'll joke around with me about you know my age and stuff. But You, you have to be patient because yeah. people who are in their 30s, they're just mad that your your knees don't hurt yet. And oh, that my you knees don't already have, hurt. <laughs> 
you don't have a pill counter with ibuprofen in it for the day. So I have all of the ibuprofen at my desk. <laughs> I did too many years of color guard in high school and college and didn't care that I sprained my ankle. So I am 25 with arthritis. With color guard with like the flags, The flags, right? yeah. That's a, could you do the full routine? Yeah. I I mean, right now it's been a while, but yeah, when in, I was here in 2019 uh, for Holiday Junction that year and we had to distract. Santa also came by helicopter that year. Like he did this year. That was year. the last year we did Yeah. Helicopter. And I had to help distract people while we were just waiting for Santa. So I actually had my flag and spun it out there to distract people and be like, look at me. Wow. Don't be bored. If we did, <laughs> don't be bored. If we did a museum talent show. Is that what you would do? What would you do for the museum talent show? I would probably do that. I'd have to get a flag again because I haven't had one in years. But I'd probably do that because it's easy at this point. The sprained ankles is something I never would have thought of. But it's because you're so mesmerized by the by the flag when you're mm -hmm. watching it. But you're doing it and you have to move around. Yep. Marching around, avoiding inevitably the bass drums or trumpets uh wandering around trying to pass through and then be like oh i can go wherever i want it's like i have a six foot flagpole and i can't see you do not march directly into me did you ever do do the baton i did too? not uh batons completely separate so you twirl a baton between your fingers if you were to spin a flag between your fingers more than like two fingers you might break them i was, I was gonna say because <laughs> it's a it's a six foot aluminum pole usually that has uh carriage weights on either end of it this is fascinating. Welcome welcome to the Color Guard <laughs> Hour because this is very, very yeah, interesting. I did it four years of high school and two in college before I was like, I need time to write all of my papers because education's a lot of papers. Yeah. Especially history. So, okay, so you went to school for education, mm -hmm. for history in particular? Or? Yes, I did. It was called Integrated Social Studies. So in theory, had I gotten licensed, I could have taught economics, world history, U.S. history, philosophy, sociology, psychology. I could have taught anything in that realm, but I realized probably about my junior year, formal ed wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I would have had to add years to my degree to get a history degree if I were to change over, which more power to you if that's your thing. I was already done. And I started looking into internships and stuff. And I actually interned here in 2019 as well. I was the Labs and Makerspaces intern in 2019. All right. Isn't that wild though, that we're telling 17, 18 year old kids, all right, set your course for the rest of your life Yeah. now. And it's like you, you get into it, you're two years in, you're like, oh, well, I didn't know all this about that. Or yeah. you learned something. Oh, my gosh, that's another possibility. I learned about the – I had a minor in museum studies, and I learned about it from my roommate who had it. And she's like, yeah, this is a minor. I'm super excited to work in museums. And I'm like, wait, that's an option? And here I am a couple years later. <laughs> but for, for youth, this, that's why programs like this are really important because – you're exposed to different things. Yeah. What people forget about museums is museums are businesses. We just are in the business of exhibiting mm -hmm. uh, science specimens and history artifacts and, and education and things like that. But they have an opportunity to work alongside so many different disciplines and skill yeah. sets that they get uh, a greater perspective of, of the opportunities and options out there for yeah. them. And I don't do this personally. I know the youth programs, uh, more their staff will take the kids on a college tour every year. Last year, I think they hit like 13-something colleges in three days. It was insane from what I've heard. That's But wild. they also do, you know, exploring different career ideas and different career development stuff. And I always tell the kids, like, have a kind of plan of what you want to do. If that changes, that's fine. And I told them, you know, I was accepted to college as a psychology major. I changed to history. Then I changed to education. And then... 
I should have known I wasn't going to do it. formal ed in the end. My mom was a high school social studies teacher for 20-something years. And when I told her I was not going to do a formal, she was like, yeah, I knew you weren't going to be a teacher. I just let you figure that out on your own. I started as a zoology major, and I switched to history. And my dad will tell me, I remember exactly where I was when you told me that. I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to bring your world down. But um, the college chores that we do with youth is, mm-hmm. is really fantastic. But... Um, just in general, getting them more experience and ha- letting them work alongside other people is yeah. is really important. It, Especially because so some of them are homeschooled. They're from multiple different schools across the whole tri-state area, different socioeconomic statuses. So it's really nice for them to meet other people that aren't in their bubbles. What area of history specifically interested you the most or continues to interest you the most and has it changed? Mm-hmm. So it's a little depressing. My favorite areas of history in college were the American Civil War and genocides in the 20th century. Okay. <laughs> I always have to be real careful when I talk about it because it's I don't care about the war. Like the wars are obviously like, you know, when you're studying them, it's the important thing. But I don't care much for military history. I think part of it's when I was in college, wanted to join these history clubs and associations. When I would say I cared about like the the psychology, the people during the time, I would get really weird looks and hear people talking like immediately like, I'm really happy you really enjoyed this Russian czar that no one knows about. And there's one book written on him. There's nothing wrong with me liking to talk about the Civil War. We've spoken with Jill Bites um, from our history library and archives. The Civil War, for example, in textbooks and things like that, that's all consuming. That's all that was going on for four years in this yeah. country. Well, people were still they were still planting crops. Mm-hmm. They were still raising kids. They were people still, were still living. Like so the day to day does still matter, but mm-hmm. it was different yeah. in those four years than it was before and after. So I think that's it's a very valid point, but that also shows like maturity and understanding and really wanting to have a depth of that history yeah because it's you know there's a book i read um about the holocaust that was this police battalion uh, in germany that the person who was in charge of it his name's escaped me now but he didn't like the horrible things his police battalion had to do were given orders to do so he wouldn't make them if they were given orders he would say you have the option to do this and if someone said no he didn't do anything um, and I think he was eventually harshly punished for that. But it's just so interesting seeing those tiny little decisions individuals make that do can really impact people. Well, if you're interested in the psychology as well, yes, you can learn a lot about psychology and in, in, in people in in everyday situations. But it's these these moments of extreme and uh, extreme pressures of, of whatever in so thinking about the civil war this very very turbulent time in, in american mm-hmm. history or thinking of genocides in the 20th century these are people at their most extreme one way or the other like at their most wicked or at their um experiencing the most awful circumstances and that is like a fascinating mm-hmm. uh perspective to think of it from a psychological yeah. perspective right do you still dabble in that? Like, is that a, a side hobby for you? Is that something you still pursue? It's been a minute. I used to read a lot. had to read a lot in college. Um, recently more, I've been reading just kind of random books. There is a book club here at the museum that uh, one of the girls in the kiosk started that I'm in. And we just read The Princess Bride that we're talking about tonight, actually. And this we read fun. a bunch of different books. Like last month we read uh, Carmilla, which was actually about a vampire story that was written before Dracula. That one was really interesting. I forget what book we're reading next. Let's be honest. Are there people in the book club who clearly don't read the book? And do you know that they don't read the book? I have only read a quarter of this month's book. Okay. <laughs> and we all know, like, it happens, you know. So, yes, there are people, and you know because it's you. <laughs> Sometimes it's me. I read the entire book last month. I'll finish this month's book eventually. But, 
between Santa's arrival and everything else, Holiday Junction getting here, I've been doing a lot of sleeping. Right. Yeah, I can understand. So thinking of volunteers, do you have to be two different people and working with teens and working with adults? Or is there commonalities between the two that you can apply? There's a lot of commonalities. I know people are very scared of teenagers sometimes because it's like that's a whole different world. You know, teenagers are so emotional. It's like, of course they are. They're going through puberty and have a lot of hormones and emotions, they're still learning how to process. Maybe not the level of learning how to process as a four-year-old who's freaking out about something, but they're still learning how to navigate the world around them. And that level of empathy of, I know this seems like the end of the world to you, let's give you space to think about it. And for a lot of adult volunteers, if they've already retired, it's, I'm retiring, I need to figure out what on earth I'm doing with my time. And kind of struggling with that for a while or being really excited to share things they're really passionate about, which is really, really nice to see with them. So what are you doing with the volunteers? What are the volunteers doing for us and how how are guests going to experience them and interact with them? So you'll see for any museum engagement volunteer will be on the floor. Uh, I currently work with making a lot of their trainings and stuff, helping get them prepped for the museums and really ready to be on the floor. And they'll be talking about anything they're really interested in. So one of our volunteers, Dennis, he both volunteers with us and Cincinnati Heritage Programs. He loves talking about this building. He does a lot of the rotunda tours. You'll see him on Fridays, but he's in a history museum and science museum as well. And I have picked his brain about this building. I don't even know how many times. (laughs) For volunteers, are these people who come in with a, a set of knowledge or a set of skills that they go, oh, I know all about transportation, 20th century transportation history in this city, or I know all about uh, life in the 1850s. I'm a retired biologist or chemist. Or are they just curious people that say, hey, I want to I work in a museum and I want to volunteer <laughs> in a museum, spend some time here and, and learn some stuff in the process? It's kind of all of the above. Uh, we have some volunteers who actively work in DNA labs and they still want to volunteer the museum engagement side because they want to talk to guests about that stuff more. We have some volunteers who you know, are in college and want to learn more about overall the museum field and just want to learn more that isn't just the stuff they're studying. If someone's interested in volunteering, what what advice do you have for them or, or how do they even get started? So getting started, uh, there's a section on our website where you can click volunteer with us and you can submit an application or email our head of volunteer and intern services, Cordell George. He will get you set up and get you over to us. Let's talk off the record, but we're on the record. So what makes a good volunteer versus a bad volunteer? Because let me tell you, I volunteered um, at the Air Force Museum when I was in grad school because my grandpa took me to the Air Force Museum when I was a kid. Uh, It wasn't that far away. I love airplanes because I'm still a little kid. So I was like, oh, it'd be cool to just walk around here and like learn about airplanes and then talk to other people about airplanes. But I was a bad volunteer. I will admit that, that I would just kind of stroll around. And here's the other challenge is you, you say, oh, I love this gallery. Or, hey, I want to volunteer at the museum center. I love the dinosaur hall. So I just want to volunteer in the dinosaur hall. That's great. And we would love to have you. But we also have needs elsewhere. I was like, oh, I love World War II airplanes. Those are so cool. I want to volunteer in that gallery. And they said, yeah, so does everyone else, kid. We need you in the, the Cold War gallery. I was like, what are these plans? Which, in my opinion, I'm like, cool. This is like the ugly era of airplanes where they're just trying stuff out and like everything's pretty lame in here. I don't know anything. So I'm just walking around and I would read stuff and I would learn a little bit. And so there were certain planes and things I didn't know about. 
But I would also be walking around and be in other areas and I would see people kind of look at me and like, oh, no, I'm not going to know anything. And so I would scurry off. I was a bad volunteer. <laughs> anyway, broadly, we're not going to call anyone out. But what makes a like really good volunteer from uh, from our perspective and what makes a less <laughs> useful volunteer? <laughs> Uh, something I always tell both the youth volunteers and the adult volunteers is, one, don't be afraid to be cringy. There is nothing wrong with being excited and feeling a little awkward in that for a moment and ready to share information. I usually, if some guest walk into a gallery, it's, you know, hey, how are you doing today? And open a conversation like that. And I always tell people, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. We're allowed to have our phones on the floor. You can say, I don't know. Let's figure this out together and pull your phone out and Google it. There's, I think, power in being able to admit you don't know everything because there's this pressure I think of I feel like I have to know everything if I'm in dinosaur hall I always joke I major in history for a reason and I'm still iffy with some of the dinosaurs that we have but there's nothing wrong with not knowing and you can always learn more and recognizing that I don't have to know everything and that's okay and not being afraid to say I don't know is a really big key thing I think for volunteering I think the the not being cringy that comment is important also me saying Wait, what's cringy mean? Because I'm old. But I think if someone's excited about something, they can get other people excited about it, even if they're not interested. It's kind of like live music is hard to be bad because genuinely when they're playing, they're really passionate about it. They love the music that they're playing. So it comes through and you're like, yeah, this is this is a good experience for me. Am I going to want to leave here and buy that CD and listen to it all the time? No, not really, but I really enjoyed it live. So if someone's like, you know, space isn't my thing, uh, but you have a really engaged, really energetic volunteer that can bring that to life for them. In that moment, they're like, yeah, I'm a space person. Mm-hmm. Are they going to leave and suddenly be a space person? Who knows? But in that moment, they really had an experience. Yeah. And there's those little moments, too, of I, I've seen some of the youth who have said, you know, I came here as a kid and I saw this staff member talk about this random thing. And they fell in love with that subject and want to pursue that the rest of their life. And that's something that... I'm really happy I still get to do. Originally, when I left teaching, I was like, oh, I'm not going to get to do, you know, work with kids. I'm not going to get that aha moment or that moment where people get excited about what I'm talking about. And luckily, you can get that every day working here or volunteering here. You get that teaching moment, that that moment that educators have where things click for people, where someone's really excited and passionate about it and, and just looking for a place or a person that wants to nurture that and harness that for them we get to encounter and engage with those people. And so you get to play that role for them, not just the guests on the floor, but for the volunteers as well, mm-hmm. especially the the team volunteers. Mm-hmm. And even for other staff too. I One of our staff, Johnny's, knows so much about dinosaurs and uh, Mary as well, who also works here. And hearing them talk to me about dinosaurs, I'm like, it's slowly making more sense. And they're <laughs> happy to take their time and dumb things down a bit so it makes a little more sense to me because technical language is... Very hard to learn. Something I did learn in college is if you have someone who's learning a different language, it takes a couple years to get social language. It takes over a decade to get academic language or it can when you're learning a second language or a third or fourth or past that. And see, dinosaurs for me, social language is kind of uh, the different names of dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and things like that. And then academic language is understanding that they didn't all live together and parceling out the different periods of time. Because people, they want to see the all-star team yeah. of dinosaurs. And it's a little uh, it's a little tougher to break that down for people and say, the other ones are cool too. Like, it was, yeah. every era had a strong team. So what brought you 
to the museum? What said in your mind said, you know what? That's a good spot for me. I used to come here all the time as a kid. I distinctly remember coming here with my grandparents. Are you homegrown? Uh, yes, I am from right. Cincinnati. I've been here my whole life. And I would come here with my grandparents and my sister. We'd go in the Children's Museum and immediately run away from them. We would, <laughs> we'd go stay together, usually to waterworks or the woods, but we'd immediately run away. And, and we'd hit each other in the woods, things siblings do. But I've joked, mine and my sister's behavior when we were kids is karma now for when we have a very excited school group yeah. we'll go with um and then yeah, i came here as a kid and then i was searching for internships in college because as part of my museum studies minor i had to do an internship and i applied to a bunch this was the closest one and i really wanted to intern here it was like my top one and conveniently the other couple ones i applied to ghosted me so I ended up interning here in 2019. So that whole summer I was here in KidSpace and STEM Lab. STEM Lab was very interesting because <laughs> science took a long time for me to wrap my head around for some of it. But I was even applying for jobs even during that internship. Like toward the end of it, there was, funnily enough, like a youth programs coordinator position that opened up that I unfortunately didn't get. To be fair, I was still in college then. Like schedule would have been a little rough. But I was here seasonally for Holiday Junction 2019 at the beginning of 2020. And then COVID happened, so nothing was open, and I've been applying to jobs pretty much whenever they opened here and came back in uh, summer of 2021. It sort of becomes fun to look back at the jobs you don't get in your life and, and think that was the right thing to happen or, oh, I lucked out there. Because one of the things when you're talking about talking with teens and what they're experiencing and having this 17, 18-year-old say, great, I'm going to go to college for this degree, and I get three years in before I realize, oh, no is understanding you're just building your skill set yeah. and you're figuring out what you do really well and what really interests you. And then your career is sort of finding that path of where what role lets you harness both of those things. Uh, and so figuring out what jobs don't pan out and do. But working in the STEM lab, interning there, you're kind of the perfect person for it because science is not your thing. So you have to learn it in a way that is going to then be a way that other people need to learn yeah. who don't know it as well, right? Yeah, and I always tell people the easiest way to see if you know something really, really, really well is to teach it to someone else who has no idea what the thing is. So even when we're making or working on different um, in the past programs when we are still doing those or just ways to interact with guests about, especially stuff in the Science Museum, I'm often a benchmark of, okay, does this language make sense to the average guest? And I, I've learned more over the two and a half years I've been here, but it's still, I don't know all that academic language. Same thing for if I'm talking about something in the history museum of, does this make sense to someone who doesn't know about 1850s fashion and the intricacies within that? Are you ever in the middle of explaining something to a guest and something clicks for you? Like all of a sudden you say, oh my gosh, I understand this now. I learned something. <laughs> it's happened before and they can kind of see it on my face. And I'll flat out say like, yeah, I just realized while explaining that, you know, these two threads all of a sudden connected. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say, you know, I just learned this. I'm not an expert in this. And it's kind of nice to share those moments with guests because they feel a little less stressed about like I'm in a museum I need to learn something like I need to you know become a master at the subject and you learn one thing we're happy this is kind of the nice list naughty list episode because we talked about what's a nice volunteer what's a naughty volunteer but as someone who grew up visiting as a kid were you a good or were you a bad museum visitor what do you think I was a very excited child who came here with my younger sibling 
but what a I think diplomatic answer. <laughs> it wasn't. We weren't the worst kids. We weren't hurting other <laughs> children, which has happened. We weren't getting other kids involved in our shenanigans. We kind of kept it between the two of us, and we did listen to our grandparents, and they called for us. Like we came back, and one of our grandparents was like, "Okay, now don't run away again." We didn't the rest of that visit. <laughs> Knowing that we've passed the statute of limitations, is there anything you want to admit that, that you want to own up to from your museum visitation days as a kid? Or are you still like, nope, that's okay. We don't need to. I'm trying to think if I ever, I don't remember breaking anything really. Or, you know, I didn't try to feed any of the animals. You know, I need the fish in the woods tank or anything like that. But I think I was pretty good, vaguely destructive with my sister. <laughs> I wonder how many animals I unintentionally harmed by trying to be helpful. I'm like, hey, do you want this? Or do you want to go into this? Let me move you from this place to this place. Interviewing isn't always the worst thing. Like if I pull out a Shelly, our Eastern Box turtle from the Children's Museum, people are asking questions like, what can I do if I see an Eastern Box turtle? If you see them crossing the road, pick them up very carefully, you know, kind of get your fingers under their belly and move them to where the side wherever they were going to. You put them back on the side they're coming from, they're going to turn right back around. What's really fun about speaking with people on this podcast are these light bulb moments because you just said... Like, when I pick up Shelly, I'm like, what are you doing picking up the turtles? Is this, how often does this happen? That <laughs> Whenever you, I take her out, I have to pull her out. I'm like, where in your job description did that fall in? Other and, duties as a side? <laughs> did you grow up handling wild animals or, like, a animal lover? Because I can tell you, I don't think I've ever picked up a turtle. And I don't know, as a kid or as an adult, that I would be like, oh, let me go grab that turtle. It's not, that's... Not my cup of tea. We've I've had pets my whole life. Always, almost always had dogs. And when I was a kid, we'd have turtles off and on. Not the greatest because some of them were just like Eastern box turtles we saw in the backyard. And my dad was like, "Yeah, let's just put it in a giant tub." <laughs> Not a good thing to do. But we were taught how to properly handle animals. You know, keep your hands away from their mouths. I remember once there was a garter snake that my dad found that was choking on a frog. Like it did, tried to eat it. It was too big for it, so it was trying to regurgitate it, but its bones are getting in the way. <laughs> frog was good. Snake was good. My dad got the frog out of its mouth, and he let us pet a, a snake. Hold on. you. We need more detail on that. What? How do you give a garter snake the Heimlich maneuver, which was is a Cincinnati um, healthcare innovation? Everyone stay tuned for that. But what did your dad do? Because you just glossed over the most fascinating part of that story. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure he didn't tell us that he found the snake till after it was fine, but if I had to guess, the frog had like moved its legs weird so it couldn't get it was like bumping against the snake's jaw so it couldn't get out. So he probably just like helped get the frog's joints back to small enough so it could get back out. Initially what jumped to my mind is, all right, great, you're just gonna treat that snake <laughs> like a tube of toothpaste and you're just gonna <laughs> pop it right out. Oh no, that would be oh. It's pretty well known in the museum that I'm terrified of snakes and I do not like snakes. Oh, I love so all for of me, snakes. I'd be like, listen, buddy, I am so sorry for both of you. Like this is a real this feels like a real Romeo Juliet situation. I'm just gonna let it happen and go the other, yeah, other way. He just got that snake, it was fine, and let my sister and I pet it, and it lived under our shed in the backyard for years. Just living his little snake life. We didn't pet it after my dad held it the one time because it was a wild snake, but I've always been fine around snakes. We have a bunch here at the museum who really like me because I run very warm. So snakes go, ah, yes, warm hands and enjoy me. But do you look for reasons to to get the snakes out to like 
to handle the animals? Yeah. I mean, there was one time my mom's still a counselor and she came with the school she still works at as like a field trip chaperone. And she was like, oh, no one's like running a snake program today. Like, I can pull a snake out for you. I'm not scheduled anywhere specifically. And I will, if I see kids or anyone really looking really intensely at any of our animals, as long as I'm trained on it, like, do you want to pull the animal out so you can look at it or pet it? And it's so funny to see how excited kids get. And usually with the cockroaches, the grownups freak out of like, you don't need to pull them out. And I'm like, (laughs) I can. You don't have to pet it. That's an important onboarding tip for me that I that I try to share with people is typically if someone is walking around with a Tupperware container that you can't see into, go the other way because there's probably a snake in there. Yeah, the coolers are usually snakes, turtles, or cockroaches. When we went through the building restoration, it changed the office spaces. They're a little more open now, but before there were a lot of narrow hallways and corridors and just kind of like one way through stuff. So there would be a lot of situations where you would be walking down the hallway and you just need to own that fear and get past the the snake box or you just turn around and hide in a corner. And that's been a life lesson that I've learned here. And anyone else, staff listening, if snakes aren't your thing, that's where they're at when they're not in their habitat. Yeah. Our snakes are all pretty good. I've never been bit by any of our snakes. I mean, you give them their space if the snake starts. Uh, you can tell if a snake's about to strike if they have a really tight kind of S shape with their head kind of in the middle. They might be about to jump out and strike. Unless it's a ball python because sometimes they also just make that shape. But as part of the animal training, you know, we learn to read their body language. And if I'm like, okay, Kellogg's starting to get a little antsy, back into her enclosure she goes. I'm trying to gently get her off my arm. My body is so subtly tense right now. It truly is. But this is because I didn't have a lot of experience with snakes. And that's one of the benefits of the animal program is dispelling these myths, dispelling, like sharing this information about the animals, but also what you said that these are cues that it is upset. Yeah. And give animals respect, have respect for them, Mm. for them too. I did not grow up with that. So now I just have an Indiana Jones like fear of snakes. And that's fine. That's how I'm with spiders. I have terrible arachnophobia. When I was around four or so, there was a wolf spider in our dining room with an egg sack that was about to burst on its back. So I'm like four. This is the size of my little four-year-old face. I'm freaking out. My sister's freaking out. My mom has two screaming toddlers. So she used to find one of my dad's work boots and take care of it. And I've been terrified of spiders ever since. We have one spider in this building that is like actually one of our animals. Her name's Petra. She is a jumping spider. And... I have not held her yet. I have looked at her. When she's ready to be handled, I've already said, like, hey, Anne, head of animal resources, are you fine with me holding this this spider if we have Bill, who is, like, 6'5", a very large man, just holding my arm down? That way I can't just fling her away. Like, as long as you're willing to. I'm just so over my arachnophobia because I know it's so silly. Like, most spiders aren't going to hurt me. They're more scared of me than I am of them. But brain sea spider, brain go ah. This is uh, this has been a very uh, uncomfortable por- <laughs> portion. <laughs> let, let me tell you that much. I had to do an interview once. I don't know why I had to be involved in this. I was not mic'd up or anything. So I was literally in the frame just to hold uh, our bearded dragon that we used to have. And I was not thrilled about it. So my body was so tense, like... I was just a human table at that point. 
with my hands out and I did not want to move at all. But sucked about it was I knew I was on camera, so I couldn't just look terrified. So yeah. <laughs> like, oh, no. but people would tell me like, hey, I saw that interview. You you look so scared. I was like, I, I was very scared. Was, yeah. Like in reality, it's like it was fine. It was not that bad. And I, I was thinking afterwards, it's like, OK, that wasn't that bad. You could have calmed down. Uh, but that little survival part of your brain doesn't listen of this is a lizard. Lizards can some lizards can do very bad things to me. I don't want to be around this lizard. I was holding a tiny dragon. Come on. Yeah. All right, so the the spooky animal stories, and we're we're also doing a terrible job of selling our animal programs, because uh, it it really is fascinating. It, as someone who's afraid of snakes, I still anytime I walk by, I look for them. I think mm-hmm. I want to I want to see them, uh, and it's it's very cool because if you if you're afraid of snakes, that's when you want to encounter yeah. one when it is like In safely enclosure. enclosed. So it's a really great way uh, for people to learn. And I think it's something that people don't realize that we do here. Yeah. Um, that we have live animals, that we have live animal programs as well. People may know about the bats. Yeah. Um, but, but the snakes and the cockroaches, the cockroaches are very cool. Um, the amount of adults I've managed to get to, usually with their kids, like, come on, mom, pet the snake or pet the cockroach of, you know, you don't have to. You can. You know, the cockroaches literally can't bite you and give them all the safety facts. And I'm like, you can tell it. You know, I like holding my hand away. Like if I'm holding a snake and their head is like toward my elbow, I will put my hand like they can't get you if my hand's on top of their back. And getting adults to actually be like, oh, when we pet that snake, it wasn't wasn't so bad. You're a saint. And and going through it's it's so nice to see. Just like it's weird little fears people have. Very happy to help them conquer them. It's a very museum thing. It's very fun to walk into the mailroom. Like I'll, I'll walk into the mailroom, I'll be looking for something, and there's a box of crickets. <laughs> yeah, we need a lot of crickets. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite program that you've run or that you've been able to participate in? I really enjoy dressing out on the public landing. So dressing yeah. like in 1850s clothes, hoop skirt and all. It's really fun to just like swish around in a hoop skirt. And Does that make your little history heart happy? It's it's so nice. And it was really <laughs> nice in you know 2021 when we were you know still concerned about COVID, still masking everything of, if I'm wearing a big hoop skirt, that's just giving me a birth of people can't get that close to me. Yeah. And the amount of little kids who look, are you a princess? Like, that's so cool. I have to say no because I'm not, but they always want pictures, and it's so cute. You, I'm in. You a, I'm to... in a lot of family photo albums. I'm sure, whether it's when I was just as an elf for Santa's arrival, ears and all, or just out on the public landing. Are you a princess? I have to say no, but I know I am. That's. <laughs> I've said that before. I'm like, well, technically, no, because this is 1850s clothes. And we didn't have princesses in Cincinnati then. But between you and me, I'm a princess. <laughs> that's that's fun. Two part question: Is there a a museum moment from your childhood that stands out to you? That is like this is a foundational memory for you, and a museum moment as an employee here, as a staff person here that stands out that was super memorable or one mm-hmm. of your favorites. I remember as a kid over in Kids at Work, there was this big arch thing you could build. We don't have it anymore. I believe it was destroyed in a flood. Old building. It happens. <laughs> but it was really hard to get the middle piece. Because you're building an arch kind of from side by side. And we're all children. None of us are very tall. Not that I'm very tall now. I'm 5'2 on a good day. But I remember the couple times my dad was able to make it down. He's a firefighter. Schedules are weird. He would 
immediately be like, hey, you're tall. Can you help us get the middle arch thing up? And every time he'd be down to help or we'd just find a random tall staff member of, can you help us finish the arch, please? <laughs> and we'd be so excited the arch was done. And then some random child would come knock it over as especially little kids are want to do because it's, it's a big thing. It can fall down. Now, I think my favorite is kind of it happens randomly. It's not like one singular moment. But when I've been recognized before in a Target as the museum lady. That's cool. I nearly started bawling in that very moment of someone remembered me, but then people were remembering me again when they come again and again. Or like when a school group, I ran a stage show and I hear from the back of this, you know, huge crowd of people I got, thank you, Miss Samantha. Just, it's really, really nice having kids remember you, especially if I've made that much of an impact that someone remembers me. That's the whole point of why we're here, right? That's what, yeah. what we're doing. I mean, I get it too when people say, oh, cool where do you work i work at sensei music oh my gosh i love that place and like you get immediate street cred because mm-hmm. you work someplace really cool but for you for you to like be recognized as a museum lady it's so cool yeah it's, it's really awesome kind of magical it's also kind of nice if i'm like you know at the zoo or somewhere else in public and i see a child having an absolute meltdown and mom's apologizing because i'm near her and i'm like ma'am i work at the museum center your kid is you know take all the time you need it's all good and just seeing them like deflate of oh thank god i'm not getting judged right now <laughs> like i always tell parents their kids are freaking out like oh yeah it's two o'clock it's about nap time like wait you know that at this point i will be wonderful whenever i have children because i can distinguish between like four different kinds of cries at this point of that's a tired cry that's a i'm hungry cry and that's an i'm upset cry <laughs> breed very different ones so 2 p.m was the kids nap time not your nap time right uh not a lot of you my nap time unfortunately i'm still on the clock <laughs> <laughs> There, there's all this research that says naps during the day, like a 20 minute nap. Although you could probably cherry pick an article that puts it up to an hour, that they're supposed to be good. So I think you, maybe you just like tape the article <laughs> to your desk and, <laughs> and take a little, take a little snooze. For a while, uh, Museum Engagement had hour long lunches back when you're still doing a different title. Um, and I would use the second half of my lunch to just take a nap under my desk. Sure. And so my friend who used, one of friends used to work here, and we'd both have to have little signs of not dead, on break, sleeping, just like sleeping under our desks. I used to do that when, um, if we'd have early media at like 4.30 a.m. or yeah. something like that. And there are now couches in different break rooms and spaces. Mm-hmm. None of them are comfortable. Yeah. So what I used to do, what I, what I always liked, is I would lay under my desk, but I would put my feet on my chair. For some reason, it just worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and my old desk, before the restoration, was kind of like in this little cubby a lot of times people wouldn't even know i was there and then if they popped up and someone was in there like what just happened (laughs) uh but that was that was good stuff and now it's i feel like if i nap now i'm just gonna want to keep napping yeah i i napped a lot in college i went to miami and i think i took naps in i think i did the math when i was there like 70 percent of the academic (laughs) buildings there i just you know find a random couch loop my arm through my backpack and take a nap no one bothered me you gotta, you gotta like wrap your, yeah, wrap like, yourself in it. I can't tell you how many strangers would ask me, like, "Hey, can you watch my backpack? I'm gonna take a 20 minute nap." I'm like, I need to watch this backpack with my life. There's, there's good in society, humanity. There's still bright spots when you're trusting someone else. Like, hey, it's the nap code. It's yeah, cool. It's like, I got you. Yeah, it's like, man, I get it. I took a nap an hour ago. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, quick side note: you said your dad's a firefighter. Yes. What do you think of the movie Backdraft? I don't know if he's even seen the movie. Have you I, seen Backdraft? I'm terrible at watching movies. If it's kind of 
kind of a joke at this point uh, within my friend group and a lot of people who work here. If you ask Samantha if she's seen the movie, the answer is no. I can't tell you the last time I watched a f- I think the last full movie I watched was the Dungeons and Dragons movie, which I saw in theater three times. <laughs> okay. I, I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Mitch, off mic, just shake your head. Have you seen Backdraft? Oh, no. Okay, anyway, we'll we'll get in, into it's my that. homework, apparently. This is going to be a, a recurring question for people because I'm just going to look for an excuse for someone to talk Backdraft with me. I will, uh, as often as I can, I will... If I'm talking to a meteorologist, if I'm in studio somewhere and I get to talk to a meteorologist, I'm like, hey, can can we talk about Twister sometime on air? Like, what do I need to do to pitch that story? Is oh, which movie is that? I think I've seen that one. It was like where the divorced couple are like chasing a Twister together. Yes. I think yes, I've seen that like four times. I love that movie. It's amazing. Oh, it's fantastic. Dave Dzinski has has a photo with uh, Bill Paxton because I, Bill Paxton voiced an Omnimax film. And now I can't remember which one, but we also had a Tornado Alley. I was like, I feel like it has to be the Tornado Alley one. Like, Here's here's a sad admission I'll make publicly. My first day here, uh, I worked in the I worked in the box office. I worked in visitor services and um, like four hours in HR in a, a windowless room. It was really hot. I started in, in October. We had a little break. And, okay, here's a break. Come back in like five or ten minutes. I got lost. Uh, locked out of a door and lost and had to like run around the building to find my way back in. And then when I was done with all the HR stuff, I went to my manager and I said, hey, what would you like me to do? And she's like, "Um, you know, the tornado alley is about to start. Why don't you go catch that? Okay. So it was like three in the afternoon. I'd been in a hot room for a long time just doing paperwork and listening to like the handbook and everything. I fell asleep within five, maybe ten minutes of that film starting and I woke up at the end. So I've, to this day, 12 years later, I've still never seen it. <laughs> and it looks really cool. But the whole time I'm like, did they ever drive through a tornado? Because that was the whole point. Yeah, the there's film. there's some Omnimax movies. Like the one we had, Secrets of the Sea. I, it had been a long couple of days. It was a chill day. So a bunch of us were sent to go watch the Omnimax movie. And I was like, I might fall asleep here. It didn't because it was very pretty watching you know the, the animals do their thing and there were the random moments of very loud music doing its job to keep you engaged, but there are some Omnimax movies where they're so peaceful you're like I could take a nap right now. You know what? This is a brilliant idea. We should do like meditation Omnimax films because it's just it can let's put that sound system that we're about to let at, at the time of this recording where we're just days away from letting Taylor Swift rock our world with it. But like, let's put it to meditative use, and you could still do on underwater stuff. Yeah. Like, just imagine just kind of floating with that. Let's let people take some yeah, naps like, in there. I have a guided meditation app on my phone. Where, where's the uh, where's the audio? Where's the audio jack? I got you. <laughs> I think we can. We we might be able to make that happen. That's one of the Omnimax guys. They might know. Did if you, there is one for phones? Did you grow up coming coming to the museum on field trips and like the Omnimax on field trips and things like we, that? There's one field trip I can remember, and the thing I most remember is getting very, very entranced by all of the rocks in the gift shop. <laughs> my sister and I were the very lucky kids of, you know, when you go to some gift shop and there's the little bags you can fill with as many rocks as you can fill, and it's like $3.99 for them or whatever. My sister and I got so good at cramming those full of rocks, and we would walk away. They would be like bulging at the seams, but it could still close, so we got our rocks. You would be surprised at how many people talked to me about that. 
Like how often that comes up in conversations about museum memories. Like a pivotal like memory for people. And I was a lucky kid who my parents were able to, to be fair, able to let us get those rocks. And yeah. we did like, you know, whenever you go on vacation, the panning thing where you get the, the bag of sand with rocks in it and you get to shake it out and get all your rocks. I'm still a 25 year old who does that. I just did that at the Ren Fair a couple months ago. That's pretty awesome. Rocks are cool. That's pretty awesome. Did you dress up for the Renaissance Fair? Yes, I did. I oh, went twice great. and dressed up differently both times. It was very did fun. Did you? Like, what character? Did I you have dress up? Like, a, what... a pirate and kind of a necromancer wizard I'm building still. That's very but, cool. And I went with like a lot of people here who work in the museum engagement overall, but I know in the museum engagement department go, like I know Bill has a Viking character. I know a couple people have pirates. It's very fun. And this kind of ties into your love of Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in a perfect world where you know people who worked in the museum engagement team weren't all really good friends who play Dungeons and Dragons together, who also want to go to the Ren Fair together, which we can't because we're open Saturdays and Sundays and the Ren Fair is not open Tuesdays, Wednesdays. But we'd all love to go together at some point. But, yeah, I think I'm in three different Dungeons and Dragons groups. Really? And all of us have gone to the Ren Fair. I am very embarrassed to admit that my knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons comes from Stranger Things. Stranger Things got a lot of people into the hobby, and I'm super stoked about it. I Is only it... got into it during COVID, but I'm one of the people who plays it who's super stoked. Just more people are getting into the hobby. Is it pretty legit? Like, is it... I haven't, I haven't seen Stranger Things, okay. unfortunately, but from what I've heard, it's pretty close and kind of the beauty of it, at least, is in the end, it's a storytelling game. So, like, I think there are sets that line up with stuff that happened in Stranger Things. That's what's really fun, though. It is, um, it's just about that community building. I think every team here at the museum has their own community. They have their own things that they, they kind of coalesce around. Uh, and then there's a lot that branches between departments, a lot yeah. of departments overlaps so much but as you've mentioned i think your team does have this real like just this real cohesion to it that's really yeah. that's really fun to to experience yeah there's a lot and i've said before that kind of like teaching you have to be called to to teaching this field does collect kind of very similar people i mean there's multiple married couples who work here <laughs> it works for a reason but because we all have very similar values and things we enjoy talking about, it kind of lends itself to us being good friends, even not here. So even though we talked about how wonderful your team is, if you could trade roles or jobs with someone for a day in the museum, who would it be and why? I feel like it's a little bit cheating to say my friend Tala, who is the director in or one of the managers in youth programs, kind of cheating to say that, but I don't officially work in youth programs. But I would love to get to work with the kids consistently. I mean, they already sass me so much. And I sass them right back. That's the best part about teenagers is you can sass them back. You can't quite sass a five-year-old back as well. Because if they, you know, they don't understand what you're saying, right. they think you're being mean. But teenagers know I'm joking with them. It is what I've always loved about our youth programs. One of the things is the team that works with them. The relationships are, are on different levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Calvin Harper, who leads that, is you know not necessarily a father figure, but it is you know that age range. But then you have people like Tala that is almost a, an older sister or like yeah. an older sibling vibe. But you are a lot of times working with teens, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what they need. It's a combination of like, listen, I can sass you right back, but also I'm like your cool 
older sibling. And so you yeah. you wield both of that. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be just another safe adult for some of these kids. You know, there's no such thing as too many adults who you feel safe with. And it's so funny working with them sometimes. Like during Santa's arrival, we had 12 or so of them who were all elves. So we were, we were all dressed up. We are, are all Santa's elves. And hearing them sing their absolute lungs out just singing christmas carols out like in the kind of walkway up to into the building just kind of telling folks like hey santa's coming here at noon and just screaming (laughs) and it was so funny just seeing them have the absolute time of their lives and you know we're seeing 13 16 18 year olds all together having a good time which is great now i heard a rumor that their song selection was very limited that day it was very short. At one point, Tala had to pull out her phone to look up lyrics because they didn't know all of the lyrics to the songs. But they're having a good time. And and some kids joined and were having a good time and didn't know all the words. So I'm like, everyone's having a good time. So it matters. They have a lot more variety in the songs that they get to choose from than like my grown up. It's like, which of five versions of Rudolph do you want to, do you want yeah. to hear? Did Rudolph, did All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey and a couple other, you know, Songs that play a lot on our Holiday Junction playlist, so we know them very well. One of the funny things about Rudolph, by the way, and I don't even know why we're talking about this. It's okay. Number one, in high school, I took a speech class and I had to do an impromptu speech. And my prompt was, what's the greatest song ever? So you get told and your time to plan is when you're walking from your desk to the front of the class. Mm-hmm. And it was in December. And and I was like, it's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And let me tell you why. <laughs> And then the other, what's great about that song is it tells you about the reindeer that everyone knows. Everyone knows Rudolph. Most people don't know the names of yeah. all the other ones. It's like, you know all these other ones. I'm like, no, I don't know the deep cuts. I only know the hit. But okay, let's live in this fantasy world where Rudolph is an, an unknown. Although my wife did did call him Randolph the other day and was like, isn't that the name? And I was like, no. As one of Santa's elves, I feel like I have to be offended on his behalf. Now, to her credit, and I helped bail her out on this, the song Run Run Rudolph, Chuck Berry does mention that Randolph's not far behind. So I don't know who Randolph is, but... He's the backup for Rudolph. He's just like, he also has a red light nose, but like kind of kept himself so he wasn't made fun of. (laughs) That way, when uh, if if Rudolph's not feeling real well on Christmas, Randolph comes in. Hey, Rudolph, I got to run to the bathroom real quick. Just hold my spot. Okay, no problem. Santa comes and goes, I don't know, guys. It's pretty cloudy, isn't it? Rudolph, you got a shiny. Let's go. Randolph comes out. It's like, where did everyone go? Oh, no. like, Listen, buddy, you're you're gonna hate to hear this, but I have wonderful news. You get a really easy night. <laughs> uh, Samantha, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining of us. Of course, thank you for having me. Us. Thank you all for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening.